Welcome back to The Truth Perspective. I'm Harrison Cayley. Joining me are Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. Corey Schenk. Hi, everybody. And manning the computers is Adam Daniels. Hola. Today we are going to have somewhat of a continuation of our show last week, which was on Darwin. But we're not going to be talking about Darwin. We're going to be talking about uh, two other ideologies and maybe some others if they come up. Um, particularly Salafi Jihadism, which is also a uh, continuation of a show we had several weeks ago, as well as uh, Judaism, like kind of modern, I guess, modern to back to classical Judaism. Um, we will describe why we use those terms. Specifically, looking at uh, two books, but with related materials. The first is Salafi Jihadism, The History of an Idea by Shiraz Maher, and Jewish History, Jewish Religion, The Weight of 3,000 Years by Israel Shahak. Um, the Shahak's book was written in the 90s, first published in the 90s, 94, I believe, and uh, has been published in several editions since then, um, latest, 2008, I believe. It's got forwards by Alain Papa, um, um, Edward Said, Edward Said, and uh, Gore Men Vidal. Gore Vidal, and who was the third one? Menchinsky Men or something like that, uh, the co-author in another book that he wrote. Norton Mezvinsky. Mezvinsky. Um, Salafi Jihadism just came out a couple of years ago. Um, th and the, re the reason we wanted to bring up both of these is, well, I guess, first of all, because they are relevant, both being, uh, I mean, if you look at Israel in the Middle East, the, the two religions and the two ideologies kind of um, overlap geographically, but also have uh, what is probably more important, some, some more essential features in common, um, which they happen to have in common with uh, neo-Darwinism as well as as well as uh, numerous other ideologies. Specifically, their um, kind of poverty of psychological insight into what humans are really like, and as we described last week, when when that combine when that like when that psychology that psychological worldview when that view of human nature combines itself or or like. Um, injects itself into an ideology that has um, historically and and today uh, very negative repercussions. So maybe to get into some, just to, to start out with some specifics, um, Maher, in his book on Salafi Jihadism, lays out the, the, the kind of main features that distinguish Salafi Jihadism from Salafism. So, I mean, I... I gave a brief overview when we did the our, our introductory show on this topic. I'll just go over it again just to kind of give some background information. So um, Salafis in general, which is uh, like a, a subset of Sunni Islam, they are they're fundamentalists in the sense that they believe that um, it is Islam's duty and uh, Muslims' duty to es help establish God's sovereignty on earth. And the way to do that is... Um, through gaining political power um, in order to institute like a, a caliphate in some cases well not not uh, Salafis in general um, that's more of the jihadists but uh, to, inst to establish God's sovereignty and to um, to do that by reverting to the the beliefs and practices of the first three generations of uh, of Islam so uh, you know Muhammad and his immediate successors and the the way so it's kind of what distinguishes Salafi jihadists is um, is the the way in which they go about realizing um, realizing that goal. They share a lot in common with um, with 
Muslims in general, as well as Salafis in general, um, specifically in their beliefs about like the the core tenets of faith, um, and um, and and their maintenance of doctrinal purity. So they have that in common with a lot of other Muslims and uh, and Muslim kind of Muslim sects, I guess you could call them. And what their main goal is, like I said, to establish God's sovereignty. The way to do that is to um, is through um, what they call realizing God's unity, Tawheed. Tawheed is kind of one of the main tenets of Islam. It is the like a, a it's a doctrine of like three central beliefs about the the unity, you know, oneness and omnipotence of God. So it's basically kind of like a doctrine on what God is, what God's features are, what Allah's features are. And it's kind of like you you have to believe in these three aspects of Tawheed in order to be considered a Muslim. And what separates the Salafi jihadists is that they have um, they have kind of really to to an extreme degree combined the the faith aspect of of the faith with the the works or the actions associated with with the faith. Um, in other branches of Islam and even in other Salafi traditions, the the tie between the two between faith and acts isn't so uh, strict or rigid. But for Salafi jihadists, it's become extremely rigid, to the point where it's um it's like a very uh, like doctrinaire rigid like totalitarian system of like black and white yes or no propositions and like you either you either are doing this or you're not. If you're not, you're evil, and if you are, you're great. And um, well, to to give one specific example of Tawheed, like there's this one. One aspect of Tawheed is the 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 unity and the like the the uniqueness of God um, in that God is the only being and thing worthy of worship. And one aspect of this unity is um, is the the doctrine that uh, the doctrine of fate and predestination. So this is an aspect of God's omnipotence. So God. For like to to this to these two Muslims within this branch of like Salafism, um, this means well actually this this applies to um, you know any Muslim that agrees in these aspects of of Allah that that there that fate and predestination is real. So you have a set number of days that you're going to live. Um, God has determined that uh, before time existed, before the first event in the world. God had set the had set every every future event into into place. So God knows what's going to happen. God made it that way, and so there's nothing you can do to change your fate. One way or the other, you're going to die on a particular day, for instance, in a particular way. And there's nothing you can do to either bring it to to make it happen sooner or to delay it. You can't escape the 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 fate that God has decreed for you. It's a very kind. It's a very rigid um, predestination, and so. For for some for some Muslims, it's like it's enough to believe in that. But what the Salafi jihadists have done, um, and this comes about through, or this has come about through through various, um, let's say, like contingencies on the ground, um, primarily through warfare. So through the experience of warfare, for this in particular, through um, like what started with uh, the Mujahideen in, the, in Afghanistan in the eighties. Through various experiences of the Mujahideen, they developed these doctrines, and now they've kind of spread wider in uh, you know throughout various um, Salafi jihadist groups. 
not just limited to the original Mujahideen and Al-Qaeda that grew out of that, or the Taliban. <clears throat> so the way that this gets put into practice is that um, for Salafi jihadists, they, they basically say that, well, no, just believing in it isn't enough, um, because th there has to be an active action associated with the belief. It can't just be a passive belief, because that doesn't show that you believe it. To actually demonstrate your belief in these, in these uh, doctrines, there needs to be a, an action that corresponds with that belief, that demonstrates that belief. So in the case of fate and predestination, um, there was this one guy in the this one Mujahideen fighter in the in the 80s. I th I think his name was like Azam or something like that, and he had this experience like he was a a real a real go getter, like he was uh, very fanatic and like uh, zealous. So like on the battlefield, he was he was the guy that was uh, you know standing up while the bombs were falling around him and basically saying like bring it on. He wanted to die basically. He wanted to 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 be martyred, and so he survived all these battles. And there was this one battle in particular that was that's kind of gone down in history, um, not only the history of the war but in the in the kind of jihadist uh, mythos too, where um, the the Russians were like pounding this mountain where all these uh, all these mujahideen were fighting, and. Um, you know, he wanted to be on the front lines and fighting, but uh, like his commander said, "Okay, no, you know, head back." And so he he was like supposed to be spending his time in this shed, but instead he walked out and he was he was just standing there. And apparently, bombs were dropping all around him, and he survived. And he was kind of disappointed afterwards because he really wanted to to you know to die in battle, and he never did. And he spent he spent the rest of his time like traveling around and like going to the U.S. and uh, you know getting funding for the Mujahideen and all this kind of stuff. But that was kind of one of the first events that solidified this doctrine, or will, that provided the material that later solidified into a doctrine. And it's the idea that the only way to prove your belief in fate and predestination is to wage jihad, to be involved in warfare for the sake of Islam. And, and the, the reason for that is because that's, that shows that you have put your life completely, that you're, you have put your trust in your life completely in God's hands. Because you will die when you're supposed to die. Um, so if you are destined to die, let's say, like in five years, then going to war right now and like, you know, launching this blitzkrieg attack on the enemy, for instance, that won't matter because you'll survive because you are destined to survive this battle. On the other hand, if you charge in and you die, it was going to happen anyways. So you, you have only proved your trust in God by engaging in acts, like, uh, in acts of this sort. So... Um, this is just one justification that they use uh, for for their belief in the the kind of inescapable um, requirement for engaging in warfare, and that is because warfare is the only me the only way to prove your belief in this one aspect of tawhid in the unity and oneness of God. So um, this is th this therefore gets used as a kind of justification and. Um, uh, well, just as a justification for um, suicide attacks and um, um, a variant of suicide attacks, I can't remember what the name they use for it is. They, they've got a word for it, but it's basically when you you basically charge into you charge into battle. Essentially, it's like a suicide mission because it's you're not going to blow yourself up. But this is what ISIS became famous for because um, because they were so fearless on the battlefield. Like uh, you know, you'd have these guys. A bunch of guys just with Kalashnikovs that would run into like the 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 ground held by the enemy troops, and they'd just charge the place and and start shooting. Like no one, 
no like sane military commander or like or you know uh, number of troops would engage in that kind of reckless behavior and that's why they were so effective actually is because it was it, so unexpected and um you know so fear inducing because you know what do you what do you do in that situation right think imagine yourself on the other end of it this is well this is what the iraqis uh, experienced a lot in the in those first days of uh, of the you know isis basically taking over the country a lot just um a lot of the Iraqi, um, you know, military just would surrender, or not surrender, but just retreat immediately. They wouldn't engage in, engage in battle. But a lot of the times, it was just, you know, this whole horde of, you know, crazed militants just storming the place and shooting everything. It's like it was um, both a source of, um, you know, terror for the people experiencing it, and a source of. Um, um, pride and you know bragging rights for the the ISIS militants that were engaged in this kind of behavior because then they look back and then like the the odds that they faced or then you uh, and the odds that they beat you know that they um, you know the the victory that they stole um, in this situation was then seen as like a miracle like this showed that God was on their side and that um, um, that, that you know that they were meant to win this battle for instance and many battles after that so. This is just kind of one example of the way in which the, the, the beliefs have kind of transmogrified over time. And one of the aspects that Marr gets into, which I was, uh, it, it kind of came up coincidentally, because when we had the first show, I'd only read the first part of the book, and he hadn't brought this aspect up. But um, by the end of the book, he, he brought it up in several different areas. And that is the 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 contradiction between what he calls like the ideal the idealistic theorizing of the the writers um, and like the the theologians and the, the people actually writing the, the the material on this and the actual um, like fighters on the ground and how um, when the when the idealistic ideology meets the like the the reality of battle for instance the, the concepts change you find that things don't things don't uh, fit the way the theorists um, thought they would and the, like the high ideals of the of, of the theorists aren't you're, they're they're not able to be put into actual practice um, in everyday well not not everyday situations but you know in extreme situations like warfare and the the connection to be made is is what we talked about last week when Lobachevsky is talking about ideology and the the contradictions and the like the differences between the the original schizoidal ideology and then what it becomes because the way Lobachevsky put, puts it is that the like the the kind of utopian um, like pie in the sky idealism of the of the schizoidal ideology um, then gets operationalized by pathological actors and um, and that results in a like a transformation of the ideology often against the wishes of the, the original ideologues, the original people who came up with these ideas in the first place. And you see this in, um, well, whenever, whenever something like this happens, that, that was the, like one of the points of last week's show and several of other, our other shows on Ponderology, is that you get this, I, this original ideology, and it may have a lot of like, you know, so-called or you know, great ideas on the surface of things, um, things that a lot of people can get behind, whether because they are... Um, for social justice in some way or you know justice of one sort or another 
And because there are real grievances behind the ideology, behind the, the, re the, the reasons for the ideology, um, a lot of people can get behind it and say, oh, well, you know, I agree that, you know, this kind of thing ha has happened and it's bad and something needs to be done to right the situation. And this ideology agrees with me about those things, that this bad thing happened and something needs to be done to fix it. And so the, they adopt the ideology. But the problem with the ideology is the... the the kind of, um, you know, hollowed out theory or the hollowed out assumptions about uh, human nature that then, um, because when you, have, when you have a bad theory about something, it's not going to work in practice, naturally, right? That's just, um, that's just a, a truism. Um, it, if you're wrong, it's not going to work. And so all these ideologies are wrong in some very big ways. And because those those wrong premises are kind of at the root of the ideology, they'll never work out the way the theorists think they will or hope they will. So in the case of the Salafi Jihadists, a lot of the guys that were like writing these books and, and uh, like tracts and things in the 80s, the, that's where a lot of the main theorists came out of. Um, you know, they haven't engaged in battle since the 80s. A lot of, the, a lot of the, like the famous names, or you know, semi-famous, because most people don't know who they are. But um, but the the way things have played out over the past thirty years, it's it's gotten to the point where even the the people using their works, um, the actual authors themselves are like, oh, what are you guys doing? It's like, no, you're totally wrong. You're t you're totally mis misinterpreting us, and you're going too far. And it, it's this it, like it was the same thing with Marxism and like and uh, you know the works of Lenin and Marx and Engels in the in the Soviet Union, where it's like the the real Marxists, the the genuine. You know, authentic Marxists who actually believe in the ideals and think it's a great idea. I mean, they were the first to to say, "What are you guys doing?" It's like this isn't real Marxism. This isn't real communism. Um, well, no, it's not. Not according to to your definitions. But the the way it plays out is inevitable because of the problems inherent in the original ideology. Um, because like the all of the great things that most people think about these ide ideologies and the things that they can get behind are like the secondary. Um, well, they're secondary to the, the the more basic premises that aren't based in reality at all. So, um, well, we'll get into some more specifics, but did you guys have anything to say about that? Yeah, it just... <clears throat> I was thinking about the, uh, you know, the original, uh, the Salafi jihadism, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that has its roots in the Soviet, in the war against the Soviets, correct, in Afghanistan? Well, the modern, kind of, that's where the ideas yeah, started that's, to come? that's where the general ideas started coming about, mm -hmm. was in the 80s, but <clears throat> it was only really in, like, first in the 90s that things started to solidify a bit more, like in, in Algeria, but then, it, like, the, the actual ideology didn't become cemented until after the, the second Iraq war, after 2003. Right. Like, before 2003, <clears throat> um, all these ideas were just kind of vague and nebulous, and there wasn't, there wasn't anything kind of unifying them. Um, so, like, ironically or not, it was actually the war on terror that actually resulted in the most terroristic right. ideology uh, to come out of this group of people. That's what created ISIS, basically. Yeah. That's what formed the ideology. Which I was, I was just thinking about how uh, this ideology was formed in the war against the Soviets, or had its basic uh, roots there. But then it was in the war against Muslims that it had its own um, 
that it really gained the uh, the the foundation, I guess, that really became like concrete when the insurgency in Iraq, when they're you know they're going to war against other other Muslims, and how do you justify that? I'm guessing that's where the, a lot of the works came out that tried to rationalize why this ideology is now um, why its adherents are at war against you know other uh, Muslims. Well, that actually that actually goes back further. Because uh, Salafism in general goes back like I don't know 100, 150 years or something. Um, like in the in the eighteen hundreds was when a lot of this stuff started, and probably even before that. Like I can't remember what um, what uh, like decade or or even century. Like Al Wahhab was writing in Saudi Arabia, but um, after Al Wahhab, who was kind of one of the one of the original Salafists, um, basically he created you know established uh wahhabi the wahhabi version of sunni islam which is practiced you know by um saudi arabia and a lot of the gulf states today um through various like movements over the past one to two centuries there have been um uh, well some of them have been like reform movements for instance so you, you saw this in in saudi arabia over generations like the establishment of the first and second like saudi states and then um more recently in the 90s and so all of the all of the ideas actually have their roots going back over those over like the last couple centuries um but they've only kind of moved in in certain directions in the last like 30 years so with uh, in in Saudi Arabia, for instance, there were the, there's this the way that um, um, like uh, Al Saud and Al Wahhab kind of established their relationship is that um, the the Saudi family would basically be in charge of governance and um, like the economy and foreign policy and things like that, and then the 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 priestly class like the the Wahhabis would be. Um, I can't remember the there's a there's a name of the family that uh, that went down to to be like the essentially the the, the priesthood that they would be in charge of like uh, you know policing morality and like the the judiciary and and um, religion and things like that so there was kind of like a, a separation of powers there were the two groups and it was um, like one of the central tenets of Salafism and even like um, what's called activist Salafism so this would be like the Sahwa movement in in Saudi Arabia. Um, the awakening movement for kind of reform in Saudi Arabia, like they believe that um, they they don't believe in revolution. They believe that um, if they have criticism for like the the powers that be for the for the like the Saudi rulers, um, like the 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 royalty, then it can it should only be expressed in certain situations, like when certain conditions are met, and they're very strict very strict conditions, and and at and then after that, if those conditions are met, they can only advise the king. So they'd basically like very, very um, politely say, "Oh, you know, we think that these things are are going a bit wrong, and we think that that maybe you should do this, um, but that it's it, it's it is the rule or it is the the requirement and the duty of the the people and the the priesthood to obey the leader, basically, even if he's a, an oppressive, even if he's oppressive in certain ways, as long as as the the leader is still um, um, like." Doing a, a basically good job of keeping law in order, and as long as we can advise him, then uh, then it's good, and and we we won't rock the boat too much because stability and order is more important than um, than you know fixing those kinds of problems. So the what happened in in Saudi Arabia is that slowly, and especially in the 90s, when when the Saudis like allowed the the Americans to like open military bases, I believe that was the kind of the one of the big. Um, um, 
what's the word like uh, you know powder keg moments mm-hmm. um, then that that movement got a little bit um, more extreme t- to the point where they were publishing like uh, public letters of dissent against the the rulers saying like this is unacceptable um, you can't you can't uh, cooperate with the you know with the the evil secular westerners um, and and the, the, like the first letter had like two hundred um, signers of like you know un- university professors and imams, ve- you know various religious authorities, and then the and then the 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 Saudi rulership basically said, oh no, you know we've decided, and and this is more important. It's more important for us to engage to have this good relationship with the states. This act, this came after like the uh, the first Gulf War and the you know the problem with Saddam Hussein and Kuwait, um, and. Basically, it was it was better overall if we were to to be friendly with the Americans um, than not. And so some people said, okay, well that's all right, including like one of the head honcho, um, you know, imams in Saudi Arabia. But there was this this movement that still um, thought that that wasn't the right thing. Um, that you that they sh- they that um, the the rulership should not uh, cooperate or collaborate with uh, with the non-Muslims, and so. And this, um, like, so this dynamic has been going on for years, where the the, like, the the public essentially has been critical of the leadership, and the the way that it has played out in the last like thirty years is that it, it it's gotten to the point where instead of being critical of the leadership but not doing anything about it, like strictly engaging in um, like just a, a passive form of activism and like. Um, um, like what do they call it? Basically, just like making recommendations to the leadership. It's gotten to the point of open rebellion, and and the, that has now been justified using certain um, like you know theological concepts and you know doctrinal ideas. Um, some of which are like um, you know as he points out in the book, um, there is one that's called uh, Wala al Bara, which is which like literally means something like loyalty and disavowal. So this is basically. Originally, it was kind of like a form of like in-group, out-group distinctions. So um, the way that you kind of demonstrated your your loyalty to to Islam was through ver- various displays of um, of behaviors and like the the clothes that you wore, the way you presented yourself. Like it was kind of like an in-group distinguisher. Um, but what that so that what what that essentially means is like what are you of um, what are you loyal to and what are you uh, what do you disavow? And there were kind of like group, requ- not necessarily requirements, but it was kind of like the, the leadership held the people to certain standards, like um, you, must, uh, you must be loyal to, to these certain ideas and practices, and you must disavow these other ones. And that, that original disavowal was more like, as long as you kind of believed in it, then you were okay, um, but it wasn't like policed extremely. So it was not like, like there was a, a a police force going around you know, making sure that you disavowed what you were supposed to disavow. It was just kind of, you know, general like social mor- mores, mores, what's the word? Um, like um, just like you have in any culture, but this was, a, you know, a bit more rigid in that, w- in that it was um, like, you know, given a name and enforced to some degree. But that, then that changed um, to the point where like for the Salafi jihadist, it's like... Um, the, like the example is is this example of like seeking assistance from the polytheists, you know the non-Muslims. So by doing so, the leadership, like the Saudi leadership, showed that they were um, they were being loyal to the polytheists instead of to Allah and to Islam, and that they were now disavowing uh, like the things that they should be 
loyal to. And so, um, like I, I, I said about the Salafi jihadists and how they have tied together um, like the faith and the acts to an extreme degree, now, it, like the, so for them, disavowal needs its own positive action, its own active behavior to, to, to go along with that belief. So no longer is it okay to just like, in, on, in, your, in your heart to, to disavow something, to not believe in it. Now it is necessary to give a demonstration of that belief. So, the, so that has led to the necessity for active resistance against leaderships. Um, and that means, uh, well, leaders and heretics, and of course, because you're against the leadership, that means against the police forces, everyone involved in the actual governing of, of your country. So the, the, it's kind of shifted from the point of where, like, where, where Walla al-Bara was originally used by the leaders to keep the people in line. Now it's used by the, the people to keep the leadership in line. Like the, the true Islam is now to be found in like, in these Salafi jihadist groups, according to them. And they now are, they see themselves as holding the leadership to account. And uh, one of the other reasons that I say this goes back um, pretty far is that even in like the Muslim Brotherhood, um, which um, they're not Salafi jihadists, but, uh, but the Salafi jihadists agree with a lot of the stuff that, that came out of the Muslim Brotherhood, is that, um, that they saw the, the modern kind of Arab leadership and um, like the, the kind of secular governments of the, of the came after the colonial period, like, like uh, Assad in Syria, the Ba'ath movement, you know, which led to, same in Iraq, led to Saddam Hussein. They saw these kind of secular, non, like, non-theocratic leaders as basically giving in to the, the oppressors who were the the Westerners, the the imperialists, and that by um, so by not by not ruling in a in an Islamist fashion, so by basically by not having an Islamic state of some sort, they were um, you know disavowing um, Islam, and therefore they were um, legitimate targets of uh, protest and of you know revolution and of being taken taken over. So. Um, so the, this has been kind of these dynamics have been growing and building over the past generations to the point where, like for a lot of these groups, they are just as you know as anti-Western as they are you know anti-leadership in their own countries. They're probably even more anti-leadership in their own countries because that's the you know that's the target that uh, that's accessible, right? Um, like for for a bunch of um, for. For a bunch of radical Iraqis, what's the what's the most immediate target of oppression? Well, it's it's not America over there; it's the American stooge in in charge of Iraq, and that because that's how they see them. That's how that's how a lot of these guys see the leadership in Saudi Arabia now. So, um, um, and there is like a, an anti-Saudi uh, Salafist movement. Um, there's the more there's the more mo the, the actual moderate Salafist movement who who just protest and um, you know want to change. There's even some democratic elements um, in the in the Salafist movement, but um, um, well, dem uh, democratic to a degree. Um, he gets specifically into you know what aspects of democracy they believe in and which they disavow. Um, but then but then there are also like the militant wing, and the so it's kind of like it's 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 very contradictory and and complex because you know the there are saudi officials and people in the government who are funding these groups and, mm -hmm. and giving them support on the other hand they crack down on them and um like one of the one of the one of the reasons these gr groups have grown over the past 30 40 years especially the mother muslim brotherhood is that the, the the secular regimes and and not so secular regimes have cracked down on them like uh 
like from Nasser and Sadat to 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 Assad um, to Hussein, you know, and and um, uh, like Gaddafi, they've all like really harshly cracked down on these guys, put them all in prison, executed them. So that has only, that in itself has only um, kind of um, solidified their their beliefs that they are being uh, you know persecuted. Well, because they are. Um, well, and that's because they're like, violent revolutionaries. So it's kind of it's just this vicious cycle of like a positive feedback loop that has just um, that's created this this extremely radical version of of what were originally in a lot of cases just um, like essentially reform movements, but that were reform movements that were founded on um, uh, on let's say like less than ideal ideologies. And then there have been additionally, or like even more less than ideal ideologies that have fostered even more reprehensible versions. And it's just this this endless process of like degradation to the point where you know we get groups like ISIS. Well, so uh, the the incubation for ISIS, if I remember correctly, was actually in a U.S. Um, prison camp inside of Iraq, mm -hmm. where enough of these guys got together. Uh, and and we're basically networking and uh, and deciding that they had to kick things up a notch in, in their response to U.S. occupation. And like you were saying, um, everything about the Iraqi, uh, what was left of the Iraqi government and military, that was under the thumb of U.S. occupation after the uh, after the second uh, war with Iraq in in the early two thousands. <clears throat> so there's this incredible vacuum. Of um, of authority of power that uh, that the United States had a big hand in creating uh, in in their shock and awe destruction of Iraq that um, at first started as as this insurgency you had a bunch of uh, a bunch of Iraqis who uh, were naturally trying to resist uh, the the American kind of colonialist war and 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 their presence in Iraq uh, if you remember the stories of uh, Fallujah and various other cities. I mean, the, the U.S. made a total, a total mess of, of Iraq. Destroyed infrastructure, uh, killed uh, thousands of innocents, um, made toxic uh, with white phosphorus and, and and other chemical weapons. Depleted uranium. Depleted uranium. Whole towns. And this is on top of ten years of dropping depleted uranium on Iraq. Uh, that famous speech of Madeleine Albright. We think. We think half a, the deaths of half a million uh, Iraqi women and children is is worth it if it means overthrowing uh, Saddam Hussein. Um, like you were saying, uh, Saddam Hussein was a secular leader. He was a strong man, not a not a good guy by any stretch of the imagination. But he kept all of these disparate groups, the Sunni, the Shia, uh, in check. Um, and uh, yes, he had. He had prisons, and he and he committed torture, and uh, he was by no stretch of the imagination a particularly benevolent guy. But this was a viable, uh, relatively stable country in the Middle East before the U.S. decided that it needed to effectively destroy it. So, just bringing bringing things back, it, it's kind of it's kind of hard to separate uh, the rise of ISIS and ISIL um, from the conditions on the ground that mm -hmm. the U.S. helped facilitate in order to give rise to this bunch. Uh, and then, uh, you know, f flash forward. So this is all around 2003, 2004. You have all of these um, people who were 
who are literally becoming radicalized in prison um, and, and, and who are deciding, you know, this is enough. We, we kind of have to uh, take matters into our own hands and, and go berserk. And, and do what we have to do to create the uh, you know ISIS in, in the Levant, w- including Iraq and Syria. So flash forward 10 years later, and all of a sudden you have this, uh, seemingly out of nowhere, although it, it, it had been growing for years, this coalescing of, uh, of absolutely fanatical um, uh, forces and, and plans to take over everything, aided by... Uh, you know, Captagon and various other uh, mind-numbing and, and violent-inducing drugs, no doubt, uh, aided further by, you know, guys like uh, Bandar Bush, had, you know, former head of Saudi Arabia's security apparatus, uh, who was um, Prince Bandar, who's close to the Bush administration, you know, aided by Turkey, aided by Israel in various covert ways in order to destabilize uh, Syria and Iraq for, for their own purposes. And perhaps later in the show and, and in next week's show, we'll, we'll be discussing Israel's uh, goals and, and, and hand in some of this and why. Um, and, and at voila, you know, that one of, one of the, one of the most uh, barbaric uh, uh, crazed movements um, and permutations of Salafism that um, that you know that they could have hoped to have, have brought together, but again, not without the uh, material and logistical support of a whole lot of other crazies who were using them as tools uh, and using their ideology as as tools um, to be to be employed to destroy governments and um, and infrastructure. And normal, you know, just normal civilization uh, in wide swaths of Syria. Uh, incredible. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, you, you think about the invasion of the Middle East and of Iraq and the insurgency and everything. And at the time, I mean, you obviously they had a, that opened them up to a whole new audience of people who would, un- mm-hmm. under any other circumstances, take their ideas with a grain of salt, a pinch of salt. They would be like some fringe crazy group in America, you know, like the black Hebrew Israelites or whatever. You or know, like you, the, you know, the white ethno-nationalists. Or the white ethno-nationalists, yeah, absolutely. But if when you get invaded and it's a matter of life or death, and these are the only individuals out there, you know, they're the principal fighting force they're the ones who are saying let's take it to the enemy you uh you know obviously there are people who are going to join them because it's uh it's a matter of life or death for your entire culture your country you know mm-hmm. and then it's only after the fact that then all of a sudden you start to realize these people aren't just at war against the invaders mm-hmm. they're they're against the they're against everything about our modern civilization they are against the idea of a nation state they're they're against uh, everything that you know, we we are we think we're fighting for. We think we're fighting for our, you know our freedom, our ability to live normal lives, or what, even if it was relatively primitive and you know, prior to invasion. But you want uh, they they're fighting for di- uh, for dignity. But then you you find out no, these people are trying to impose this crazy closed the- theocratic system that uh, that is against everything that you know that deep down I think that the modern you know citizen of a country wants from their government wants from their fellow man is a degree of freedom 
the ability to work, to make a living, to not have police forces questioning your mora your morality or you know being tortured because you you grew your beard too long or you didn't have a beard long enough or mm -hmm. this or that, which is then all of a sudden you know the the mask is pulled back and you find out this is what these crazies are after. And I just I found there's this quote in Israel Shahak's book on the Jewish history and Jewish religion, weight of the thousand three thousand years. Um, where he quotes Plato's book, Laws, which I think really sums up the ideology or the philosophical underpinning to this, uh, this what is the closed system, the closed society that these ideologues are after. He writes, the principal thing is that no one, man or woman, should ever be without an officer set over him, and that none should get the mental habit of taking any step, whether in earnest or in jest, on his individual responsibility. In peace, as in war, he must live always with his eyes on his superior officer. In a word, we must train the mind not even to consider acting as an individual or know how to do it. Mm -hmm. That, I think, sums up this yeah. to a T. Well, m maybe now would be a good time to just get a little bit into Shahak's book, uh, Jewish History, Jewish Religion. Uh, just a little bit about the author. Um, he was a survivor of the Warsaw Ghetto, which is one of the most kind of successful uh, rebellions against uh, Nazi Germany in, uh, in Poland during World War II by Jews, uh, and they were quite feared. Um, I, don't, I think he was too young to be a part of it, but that's where he grew up. Uh, he was also shipped off to Belsen concentration camp during World War II, and then later moved to Israel uh, with his mother, um, where he served in the uh, Israel Defense Forces for a while, and then became a uh, chemistry professor in, in the Hebrew University. Um, so he noticed uh, among leaders like uh, David Ben-Gurion, uh, the first uh, president or prime minister of Israel, uh, certain statements that um, that reflected a... Uh, racist and imperialist attitude um, that uh, that didn't sit well with him. And it took him quite a, a while. He had to observe uh, the 67 war and the Six-Day War to to kind of put some thoughts together and, and, and seat his conviction about what Israel uh, had become or what it was intended to be uh, from the very start. So uh, quite independently of his, of his studies um, and his teaching in, in chemistry, he began to really examine um, Jewish history. Uh, and, and as a member of the tribe myself and, uh, and with my own struggles with, with Zionism, he's revealed uh, a few things to me that I didn't know uh, that, that I found quite elucidating and, and helpful. Uh, in understanding. And um, one of the main ones was a distinction he makes between uh, biblical Judaism and classical Judaism. Uh, biblical Judaism is what most people, I, I guess, would um, perceive Jewish people to, to have faith in or believe in, which is just a kind of uh, uh, adherence, uh, either reform, conservative, or, the, or orthodox, into the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, as a text, as, as the go-to uh, set of beliefs, uh, the Ten Commandments that, that they would live by. Um, but Shahak's 
establishes something else. He, he calls classical Judaism this kind of outgrowth that started, I want to say, about a thousand years ago. I, I don't remember the dates uh, at the moment, but his his point is that there is a whole other set of um, of texts that were written by revered rabbis and 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 leaders of Judaism, particularly in uh, Eastern Europe, but also in other places, that have come to establish this this understanding of, of what it means to be Jewish uh, that's wholly different from what most people, including myself, uh, have understood Judaism to be. So um, one of the kind of primary um, drivers or, or, or points of focus that classical Judaism has is to, uh, is to set apart uh, those adherents of classical Judaism to the other, to the goyim, uh, to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And um, we, we can at some point go through some of these things. We have to. They're so rich and, and, and kind of ironic and, and funny in a, in a horrible sort of way that, uh, that you have to comment on some of these because um, the mental gymnastics that goes into uh, the distinctions that, that these classical Judaic scholars make about um, you know when to be good to a Gentile and when not to be good, when to save the life of a Gentile and when not to save a life, uh, are are in so many ways so arbitrary and so uh, mind-numbingly stupid. Um, just from a, a very basic rational point of view, looking at it from the outside, um, that you have to you have to really. Uh, take a step back for a moment and, and acknowledge just what informs the pathology of, of modern orthodoxy or some modern orthodoxy as we're seeing it today in Israel and in the United States. Um, so this is a big, a big service that, that Shahak, I think, brings to uh, his, his book, uh, Jewish History, Jewish Religion. Um, you know, what, what most what he calls diaspora Jews, Jews who who may consider themselves liberal and live outside of Israel, don't seem to understand uh, is just how vehement and and radical and similar to Salafism, totalitarian mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these ideas are, um, and so uh, the, the the other point about this, I think, is that. These ideas have had a way of kind of radiating outward into the world without people even realizing it, without people even knowing that this is what they're, even if they're a, a Reformed Jew, even if they only go to the synagogue on the high holidays and, and, and observe Judaism in most of the cutest kind of culturally accepted normal you know, ways, you know, eating chicken soup on a... On, on a on Rosh Hashanah and going to temple and 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 lighting the candles and at Hanukkah and going to temple to hear a nice sermon about something kind of general that has nothing to do with the facts on the ground. Uh, so this is a this is a bit of a revelation uh, packed into 120 pages of of uh, sincere research on the part of Shahak. Um, and his point largely, and again we'll get into some details here. But his point largely is that the 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 uh, the morality that that informs uh, so much of Orthodox Judaism, 
as well as Zionism, uh, by by leftist leftist liberal uh, guys who wouldn't even consider themselves Jewish in in a in a strict sense, because uh, there is this incredible crossover or or um, or uh, um, overlap of of aims and and causes that the that the Orthodox have with the Ariel Sharon's of the world of of the uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's of the world. Um, but it coalesces, it comes together. And it's no surprise to know that uh, a large part of Netanyahu's political support uh, and Sharon's and a bunch of these other guys have come from uh, the, the orthodox, extremist, fanatical, totalitarian wing of Judaism uh, that, that would seek to have a, uh, and create a greater Israel. Uh, much in the same way that the Salafists mm -hmm. have decided that they want to remake, you know, their chunk of the Middle East into their own image. Israel's got its own map, which includes a large part of Lebanon, half of Syria, all of Jordan, and and the Sinai, and uh, and of course the West Bank and and Gaza. Um, so that that's where these these two ideologies really quite have a lot in common. Mm -hmm. um, they're both using uh, religion as this, uh, in a berserker fashion, to, to kind of thrust their forces into uh, dominating uh, the world of normal people. And, and to some degree or another, uh, it's working. Mm -hmm. um, but, but there's also a, a kind of a, um, there's also a kind of a, an awareness that's been that's been growing as a counterforce to all of this where even if you don't know that uh you know what what their what their beliefs are um you do see their actions you are hearing the words you are seeing stories of of rabbis in israel who are calling for the genocide of non-jews who are saying it's okay basically in times of war to rape a non-jew that it's okay to uh, to do various heinous things because you have because you are Jewish, you are chosen, you you are part of this uh, this movement, and God is on your side, and um, and it's okay. Yeah, I think that it's really interesting that Shahak brings up this point, this distinction uh, between just normal imperialism, which he would still be against, as, you know, most people are naturally, they're, they're against, you know, just the stealing of land or, you know, murdering of people or, you know, blatant acts of imperialism. But then he goes that, you know, in Israel, there's that extra dimension of the ideological dimension. Uh, and he lists numerous works uh, by, you know, established, you know, rabbis or Orthodox uh, Jews who, who have, who basically corrupt the soul into into wanting such a thing you know from the the general flock from just the ordinary person on the street that now they feel um spiritually like their their soul is dependent on this kind of evil existing and how co the corrupting influence that that has on the on the psyche that is just a thousand times worse than just your garden variety type imperial you know state type actions and you know it just to you know he doesn't 
you know, just to say, you know, he doesn't have any, he doesn't obviously doesn't harbor any ill feelings towards Judaism or towards the Jewish people. Uh, he writes that the road to a genuine revolution in Judaism, to make it humane, allowing Jews to understand their own past and thereby re-educating themselves out of its tyranny, lies through an unrelenting critique of the Jewish religion, mm -hmm. which, you know, you, you would never hear those words. You, I mean, that, those are probably the, I mean, the only times those words have ever been penned. Um, because it is, it is true, like, uh, like you mentioned, Alon, that it, there is a tyrannical element that's been there throughout his history that he illustrates, especially practiced by these schizoidal individuals, these schizoidal rabbis, who want to legislate every single aspect of your existence and force you to follow this and have through it, throughout its history been successful up until the rise of the of the nation state when laws became universal throughout a country and they were the the police force was responsible for arresting and for and then you know the judicial system became responsible for uh, assigning a punishment or some sort of a discipline it wasn't until then that you know the these rabbis were the the tyrants in these communities and no doubt hated by many people, many, you know, just, the, you know, the average individual, because they had the power to, you know, they were judge, jury, and executioner using um, ancient, you know, like the Talmudic texts written up in wherever, Babylon, Palestine, mm -hmm. you know, and like from 500 to 800 or 200, I think, to 800 AD, um, which were just the most, you know, schizoidal type ideological claims on the, you know, Old Testament and just using it and weaponizing it mm -hmm. in order to control the average person to exercise power and to turn society into this closed little thing that, you know, that just stamps out free will. Well, I, but before we get into some, I want you guys to, to get into some of the, like, examples and descriptions of what the kind of Talmudic view of human nature is. Before that, I want to read some quotes from the Salafi Jihadist book on those kind of topics from the, from this angle. So, um, first of all, just to come back to some of the stuff we were talking about a bit previously, um, well, I, I want to bring it back to more of the psychological angle and how, uh, like, some quotes that I that stuck out to me in terms of ponderology. So, I was talking about uh, Wala Al Wabara, or however you pronounce it. Um, oh, Al Wala Walbara. And um, there, I just want to read some quotes on something that I, some, some quotes that I think relate to what Lobachevsky calls the first criterion of ponderogenesis. Um, so, you know, this is the inability to see pathology in, uh, in any group, particularly one's own group. And in a previous show, maybe even last week, I, I, I talked about, you know, an example of this, like in, in religious groups where um, loyalty is to the to the group members, you know, the members of your group, and you'll make excuses for the members of your group. So this applies directly to, um, you know, Alwala Walbara, because it is like loyalty to the group. So um, to the quotes, um, let's see. So Abu Zubair al-Abab, a member of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula's Sharia Committee, explained that the principles of Alwala Walbara should mean giving loyalty to every Muslim in all circumstances. This applied even in cases where individual Muslims might legitimately disagree with one another over issues relating to belief, ideology, or method. Um, so the relate. So this is kind of relating to um, you know the the 
the disagreements with um, other Muslims, particularly in, in leadership positions, but in the in the wider sphere of things, that is like an absolute. You always have to side with uh, Muslims, like regardless of if they're right or they're if they're wrong, because they can only be right. Because if you're not a Muslim, you can't be right about anything, essentially. Um, so, this is a quote. The next quote is from um, uh, the Saudi cleric Nasir bin Hamad Al Fad. And he writes, um, even if the Muslim is an oppressor, his loyalty remains because of what is with him, uh, because of what is with him of Islam, and it is not permissible to assist the kufar, the disbelievers, against him. So even if you if you are an oppressive Muslim and if you're a generally bad guy, it is um, it is Muslims' duty to side with him against the the, the kufar, the non-believers. Um, again, this is Salafi jihadists. Uh, well, a Salafi view. Um, and then one more. This is okay. So rather than a, a rather than a Muslim seeking the help of a disbeliever, the issue now related to helping a non-Muslim prosecute a war against other Muslims. So this was in the context of uh, um, Iraq and uh, particularly well, and Afghanistan. So this was earlier. This is in the eighties. In this context, they argued that it was emphatically prohibited for any Muslim to support the United States, which, according to Fahd, was, quote, the central base of corruption and moral decay. It is the land of shame, crime, vile filth, and evil. So here's where you get a bit of the schizoid um, black and white thinking, where, you know, the, the West is representative of everything evil and uh, complete evil. There is there there are no redeeming qualities. So this is the, that split between the, the the we are are purely holy and good, and our enemies are completely evil and uh, and wrong. Um, this just feeds into that first criterion of Ponderogenesis because with such a belief, first of all, it is a, an unrealistic and false belief about just human nature in general, and uh, and second, that that provides the opening for the pathological elements within your own group to then gain supremacy. So um, this leads to you know the the schizoidal declaration of um, you know the the kind of epitome of this kind of thinking. So I'm going to read another quote. This is in the section on Hakimiyah, which is the you know the, the belief in establishing God's rule essentially. So like a, you know an Islamic state uh, ruled by a caliph who implements Sharia law and therefore establishes God's law on earth. And um, so at first this might not sound very controversial, but then I'll try to try I'll try to analyze it in a way that kind of brings out the the pathology. So he's talking about uh, Sir Muhammad Iqbal, who was um, I believe he was a Pakistani or you know maybe Indian at the time uh, theorist back in the like early 1900s. So Iqbal's analysis was that any political system devoid of God would inevitably arc towards exploitation and oppression. Echoing a view that was held by most Indian Muslim activists at the time, only God could check man's natural destructiveness. Now, so on the one hand, I don't, I don't think that's a very controversial statement because I even agree to it to a certain degree. But there is a like when when you when you look at the statement itself, just that statement can be read in a number of ways, and it can be intended in a number of ways. Like, because on the one hand, you you could interpret that in a way that that says that like um. Well, humans need some kind of like higher value in uh, in order to to ground their you know their morals and their values. Otherwise, 
there's there's nothing like preventing having like anti-values basically like wishing destru- destruction and exploitation and things like that like there there is a a role that uh that higher values play in in the the kind of um um like overcoming of like the baser desires and impulses in human nature but what the what's schizoidal about the like the salafist jihadist point of view is that they see like humanity as essentially evil and that the only thing that checks that evil is an external source of authority which is like sharia law or like the 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 religious police or or whoever the authorities are that uh, that enforce um proper you know proper behavior that is the only thing that keeps humans in check and that even gets to the point where um i'll read one more quote that um yeah this is on kind of like a a more explicit view of of a, a more explicit statement of like the view of human nature so this comes from um ibn atik who is um another this is a oh who's this he's a saudi writer and he wrote <clears throat> um anyone who befriends a mushrik, a polytheist, is a mushrik, a polytheist. Anyone who befriends a kafir is a kafir, a non-believer. Whether they are from the people of the book, those are you know uh, monotheistic Jews and Christians, or not. So just think about that for, that for a second. Anyone who befriends a polytheist is a polytheist. Anyone who befriends a non-believer is a non-believer. Um, that is just a kind of a totally... Um, like debased view, uh, view of essentially human nature, because like one of the things that is like I, I'd say it's pr- like the primary schizoidal belief in like the schizoidal belief in human nature is the belief that the the differences between groups are greater than the differences within a group. But the the fact of the matter, like the the only the only belief that will result in an ideology making any sense, if that's even possible is like a belief grounded in, in objective reality. And the objective reality is that the variations um, uh, within groups are larger than the variations between groups. It's like, uh, if you've ever listened to Jordan Peterson, like this is the kind of argument he makes all the time like when he's talking about um, like psychometrics, like, like the differences between men and women. For the most part, men, men and women are similar. Like the differences are only at the, the extremes. It's the same in any division of like any arbitrary division of humanity. You take this group of people in this geographic area and this group there. You take this group like of religious people and that other group of differently religious people. You're, you're going to get more. You're going to find that people have more in common, um, like on a fundamental like human nature level, than than differences between those two groups. That's the one thing that like these uh, like fundamentalists don't don't accept. No, for them. Like there is a, a fundamental difference between the believer and the non-believer, and to to the point where if you even befriend a believer, a non-believer, then you are a non-believer. Um, one more quote on this. Um, this is a quote from Sayyid Imam Al Sharif. Um, I believe. Oh, who was Sharif? Um, I can't remember which guy this wrote, this is, but he wrote the fundamental concepts regarding al-jihad. He might have been a mujahideen, I can't remember for sure. <clears throat> and um, he argued that enmity from disbelievers towards Muslims was divinely decreed, innate, and ordained by God himself. It was therefore instinctive to them. Put another way, 
disbelievers are naturally inclined to establish their own loyalty towards the disbelievers and polytheism while manifesting um, disavowal from Islam. So that's using those terms Alwala and Bara. So th this is essentially that's the, the view of human nature and it's the same view, view of human nature that we talked about last week about the foundation like uh, Herzl's foundation of like the Zionist tenets that humanity is in innately and inherently anti-Semitic. It's like it's the same thing, like from the from the um, Salafi jihadist perspective. People are innately against uh, Sharia, against the rule of God, the law of God, and the implementation of of God's sovereignty on earth. It's just the natural state of all other people, and um, and therefore, you know, that says like so. All other people are just basically these. Um, usually irredeemably evil corrupt people and what you know what can you possibly have in common with them or what can you possibly learn from them or you know how can you possibly interact in a decent way with them when you you view them essentially as like non-human the tragic irony of that is that uh that sort of attitude that becomes uh, institutionalized among a group of people creates uh the very uh, backlash mm -hmm. and and prejudice and uh, and and acts of violence um, that uh, these you know that the ideology would say already exists um, and and keeps people separated. Mm -hmm. um, but just by way of comparison, first of all, I'm, I'm beginning to think that uh, there there was some Rabbi Salafist, uh, the same guy who who wrote both you know both <laughs> these doctrines of classical Judaism and Salafism because. Uh, the, the the similarity, at least in how nuts they are, uh, is incredible. So um, Shahak uh, writes a little bit of what informs this point of view, and then I'm going to get into a couple of, of very similar sounding um, tenets of classical Judaism that he that he makes clear. He says the earliest code of Talmudic law, which is still of major importance in the Mishnah Torah, written by Moses Maimonides in the late 12th century, the most authoritative code, widely used to date as a handbook, is the Shulan Aruch, composed by R. Yosef Karo in the late 16th century, as a popular condensation of his much more voluminous Bet Yosef, which was intended for the advanced scholar. The Shulhan Aruch is much commented upon, in addition to classical commentaries dating from the 17th century. There is an important 20th century one, Mishnah Barura. Finally, the Talmudic Encyclopedia, a modern compilation published in Israel from the 1950s and edited by the country's greatest orthodox rabbinical scholars, is a good compendium of the whole Talmudic literature. So you have that that the that the Orthodox have been looking at. They have this encyclopedia of pathology uh, that they can make reference to in, in their studies all together and pretty much um, get on the same page with. So Shahak writes on the subject of murder and genocide. According to the Jewish religion, the murder of a Jew is a capital of a, a capital offense and one of the three most heinous sins the other two being idolatry and adultery. Jewish religious courts and secular authorities are commanded to punish, even beyond the limits of the ordinary administration of justice, anyone guilty of murdering a Jew. A Jew who indirectly causes the death of another Jew is, however, 
only guilty of what Talmudic law calls a sin against the laws of heaven, to be punished by God rather than by man. When the victim is a Gentile, a non-Jew, the position is quite different. A Jew who murders a Gentile is guilty only of a sin against the laws of heaven, not punishable by a court. To cause indirectly the death of a Gentile is no sin at all. Thus, one of the two important commentators on the Shulhan Aruch explains that when it comes to a Gentile, one must not lift one's hand to harm him, but one may harm him indirectly, for instance, by removing a ladder after he has fallen into a crevice. There is no prohibition here, because it was not done directly. He points out, however, that an act leading indirectly to a Gentile's death is forbidden if it may cause the spread of hostility towards Jews. And this is a point that, uh, that Shahat gets into quite a bit. If you're, if you're going to not administer to a non-Jew, if you're a doctor, let's say, uh, and it's the Sabbath and, and you don't want to administer to him, if you're going to do that, make sure that it's not going to cause any hostility. Don't think about whether or not you want to help uh, another individual who happens to be non-Jewish or what might motivate you as a, as a generous human being, as a decent human being. Uh, assist a person who's ill if you think that not assisting this person is going to cause some kind of retribution against yourself or other Jews. Okay. Got it. Got it? <laughs> okay. So Set on, for life. <laughs> if you've learned only one thing from this show. <laughs> on sexual offenses, he writes, sexual intercourse between a married Jewish woman and any man other than her husband is a capital of offense for both parties and one of the three most heinous sins. The status of Gentile women is very different. The halakha presumes all Gentiles to be utterly promiscuous, and the verse, whose flesh is as the flesh of asses, and whose issue of semen is like the issue of horses, is applied to them. Whether a Gentile woman is married or not makes no difference, since as far as Jews are concerned, the very concept of matrimony does not apply to Gentiles. There is no matrimony for a heathen. Therefore, the concept of adultery also does not apply to intercourse between a Jewish man and a Gentile woman. Rather, the Talmud equates such intercourse to the sin of bestiality. For the same reason, Gentiles are generally presumed not to have certain paternity. Then he goes on to say, According to the Talmudic Encyclopedia, he who has carnal knowledge of the wife of a Gentile is not liable to the death, of, to the death penalty, for it is written, thy fellow's wife, rather than the alien's wife. And even the precept that a man shall cleave unto his wife, which is addressed to the Gentiles, does not apply to a Jew. Just there is no, there is no matrimony for a heathen. And although a married Gentile woman is forbidden to the Gentiles, in any case, a Jew is exempted. This does not imply that sexual intercourse between a Jewish man and a Gentile woman is permitted, quite the contrary. But the main punishment is inflicted on the Gentile woman. She must be executed, even if she was raped by a Jew. If a Jew has coitus with a Gentile woman, whether she be a child of three or an, or an adult, whether married or unmarried, 
and even if he is a minor aged only nine years and one day, because he had willful coitus with her, she must be killed, as is the case with a beast, because through her a Jew got her into trouble. It, through her, a Jew got into trouble. The Jew, however, must be flogged, and if he, if he is a Kohen, a member of the priestly tribe, he must receive double the number of lashes because he has committed a double offense. A Kohen must not have intercourse with a prostitute, and all Gentile women are presumed to be prostitutes. So there's this, uh, this extreme double standard, not only among uh, Jewish men and women, um, who have uh, perhaps performed adultery with, with a Gentile, um, where the woman must be killed. But uh, in the case of a, a Jewish man who, who sleeps with a, a non-Jewish woman, uh, it's the woman's fault that he's, that he's brought the man to, uh, to, this, to this egregious sin, this bestiality. Um, and there are... are Dozens of uh, of such examples of of what is included in the, in this encyclopedia. Right, I think you could go on and on and on because, as uh, Shock writes, the the Talmud is totally comprehensive. It's rigidly authoritarian, and yet it's capable of infinite development without any change in its dogmatic basis. What he writes. Oh, he continues. Every aspect of Jewish life, both individual and social, is covered, usually in considerable detail, with sanctions and punishments provided for every conceivable sin or infringement of the rules. And since it is so authoritarian and it stretches across every single aspect of life, they have to come up with a system, a system of getting around all of these rules that the that these rabbis created, mm-hmm. and and basically shortchanging the very God, the highest God, that and trying to deceive him in the rules that they they came up with, and uh, that system is called the dispensations, um, and so there that's just a just a whole puzzle of how you're going to figure out to how you're going to work on the Sabbath or who you. Who uh, you know, if if you kill this uh, Gentile on this day and uh, you know under this time, it's just a it's a crazy making. Well, God wouldn't create the ability to get around rules if He didn't want you to get around the rules, right? I, I suppose. And uh, well, Alon, you were telling us the other day, it's still a mystery. We'll have to look this up. But you were telling us about one of these dispensations when you were in New York, right? When you were in a, in a hospital, and they had a special Sabbath elevator, yeah. because <laughs> so. Basically, I was uh, visiting someone in a hospital, and this is a, a big hospital in New York, which is, I think, named after Maimonides, this guy we just mentioned. And um, there was a bank of elevators there, and, and one of them was called the Sabbath Elevator. And um, I don't remember if I was there on the Sabbath uh, or not, but it, um, you know, one of the kind of uh, codes in in Orthodox Jewish law is to not do any work or any travel uh, during the Sabbath, one day, one day a week. Um, and I guess one way they had gotten around that in this particular hospital to, to visit sick members was to, uh, to dedicate one elevator. I guess they got the administration of the hospital to do this, the dedicated Sabbath elevator. Uh, which was to be used, I don't know if it was like only to be used by religious Jews, uh, like if, if, if it was in regular use by other um, visiting people or doctors. Uh, but, how, you know, 
this goes back to what you were saying before about the dispensation, Corey. You know, you're, you're, um, it's, it's a workaround, which I guess in this case meant, you know, a rabbi blessing this elevator and, and you know. Uh, Who knows, maybe, maybe it's operated by, you know, a bunch of, of goyim and, uh, you know, underneath <laughs> there pu- pulling the strings because you, you can't use mechanical pulling, objects or something. I don't know. Pulling the cables. Yeah. yeah. But, Who knows? Uh, <laughs> well, there's another uh, dispensation, I think is the right term for this, with the every, Shahak writes that, um, I, I believe it was maybe in the 70s, I can't remember, but it, there's one law, uh, there's one rule in the Talmud that every seven years you have to let land lay fallow. You know, you can't grow any crop on, on that land for a, for an entire year, for an entire season. And so they they got into the practice of selling the land to a Gentile and then including in the contract of the sale that they were going they're supposed to give the land back after that year and so then people were like well you can't sell this land to the gentile because if you give it to them then it becomes unredeemed land which is a very important part of the this rabbinical ideology and you know when it becomes jewish land then it's redeemed land so you are committing a grave sin by unredeeming this land and they said well, it's it's only a sin if it's a real sale. This is a fake sale. <laughs> so it just goes to show you how crafty and conniving um, these this uh, this way of seeing the world makes you. For you know, it it's just it's mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. Well, at some point, did you say that it was wasn't it actually called lying to God? It, isn't that a, isn't that a kind of a statement that they openly? You know, make to describe the dispensations, yeah, so, something like that. Um, I don't know if they actually use that phrase, but that is what it is. If you know, if you're going, I mean, that and that in and of itself goes to show a uh, this strange, I this warping of the view of human nature and this warping of the view of a cosmic, more divine value system. You know, because if you see every human being as needing to be completely controlled in order to, you know, whatever, be, you know, remain pure or whatever, and then you also see that there's these huge, this gigantic difference, this gigantic gulf between your in-group and the out-group, mm-hmm. which, as you said, Harrison, is just absolutely false. It's biologically, psychologically the other way around. There's more differences within a group than between groups. But this ideology posits that there's that you are chosen. You are the special, and everyone else is a an attacker. Some sort of you know something put out there to test you, to attack you, to be avoided, to be you know this and you know that. But yeah, well, well it, it reminds me a lot of um, game theory, the the mm-hmm. kind of pathological. Uh, way that um, intelligence people have have come to think about conducting warfare and um, and getting one over on the enemy because um, uh, so many of these statements that are that are made in in the Talmudic encyclopedia and, and various other of the classical Judaic uh, tradition um, Im- imply that the Gentile cannot be trusted. Uh, you can't trust a, a Gentile in a in a court of law, so therefore you won't even admit them. Or under only you know <clears throat> only certain circumstances. By the same token, there are certain codes to doing business with non-Jews. Uh, like you you can you uh, you can commit fraud, but only so much. 
Um, you know, th there's a certain amount of, of cheating. Uh, there's a certain amount of, of slavery that can be induced on the non-Jew. Um, but, but it comes down to these people having such a pathological worldview that they're uh, imposing on their, their own kind um, precisely because they're projecting uh, all of these um, pathological values onto other people. Uh, you know, it's like get get the other guy first, type thing, mm -hmm. um, which is a uh, far from it being a you know win win. It's a lose lose. It's uh, it's it's it is game theory, kind of watered down, put into a religious context, and um, and popularized for a group of people who are subject to punishment if they don't adhere to it. Um, so you know, pity pity the the. Uh, the humanistic, um, open-minded uh, Jewish person who grows up in one of these communities who intuitively believes or feels or understands that there's something very wrong um, about this type of thinking and behavior and, and the actions that, that are an outgrowth of it. Um, you know, we, we used to, there's a very strong Orthodox community in, uh, in Brooklyn, New York, where I used to live, and every so often you'd read a story about, you know, some young guy who had, um, and this isn't to say that every Orthodox community and, and group is, uh, is the same or cut from the same cloth. That's not the case. There are some uh, Orthodox Zionists and there are some who believe that it's, it's a, a terrible sin according to, according to their set of beliefs. Um, but, you know, you, you do read stories of people who, uh, try and break free uh, and, and do, and for various reasons, find a new set of values um, and, and live by a, a different set of precepts. And just getting back to your point earlier, Corey, uh, um, Shahak was really writing for, uh, for, for Jewish people who, um, who, who he wanted to have a, uh, a larger worldview, who he didn't want... Uh, to follow this this narrow set of precepts that um, that were so inculcated in them for for so long, the programming runs deep, uh, and you know it, it took him many years, I think, to to process it and to decide to to form a group around bringing this awareness to a larger uh, audience. Um, but it's a testament to how committed he was to you know he served in the IDF, he was a survivor of the Holocaust. So they couldn't really come at him um, full frontal. They, I don't think they could, they could attack him so directly as they would today. Uh, you know, we, we hear about Natalie Portman criticizing Benjamin Netanyahu and, and not willing to come to Israel to receive their version of the Nobel Peace Prize uh, precisely because of, of the policies that, that are so heinous that, that he's been perpetuating against the Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. She's got it. And she grew up in Israel. I mean, she's, a, she's what they'd call a Likudnik. She's, you know, she's, a, she's Jewish uh, in, in, a, in a very kind of conventional sense, but, but has come to, I think, at least uh, with, her, with her statements or, you know, that one kind of resistance, uh, an understanding of, of, of what's wrong. And, and she's done her part. And she's also been a difficult person to attack, 
um, for that very reason. So you have, you know, guys like Shahak, who, who died in 2001, but present day you have Norman Finkelstein, you have uh, <coughs> Ilan Pappy, who, did, who wrote an introduction to Shahak's book. You have the, the son of an Israeli general, Miko Pellet, uh, and others who, who have grown up, um, you know, drinking from, from the cup of, of Zionism and, and exclusionism and chauvinism and, and racism and chosenness, but who have come around to an enlightened um, view of, of what Israel has become and, and what it's doing. And, uh, and they're, they're heroes uh, because they, they're very courageous and brave in, in coming out and saying the types of things, you know, just basically putting the facts out to the world. And yeah, that comes right back to the problem with ideology and, and schizoids um, creating ideologies that can be weaponized. Uh, because when you, you look after... Uh, the Holocaust, and you know what was built to the Jewish people, but a, a safe place, a safe home, a place that you can, you know, that you don't have to worry about being persecuted anymore. You have your own state, you have your own army, you have your own land, you have your own ministries, institutions. This, you know, after years of this diaspora, you know, centuries of of being without a land so this is what's built to you and but and just like you know america invading the middle east and you know all of these jihadis yeah we're gonna give it to the americans and we're gonna protect our homeland and then all of a sudden it's all turned around and all of a sudden you find out well what these individuals aren't looking for is they're they're looking for something that's very different than what the normal individual would want to see in, a, in their country in the return of their you know of some sort of stability to their to their lives and you see that in in israel especially with this this form of like this double speak and the way you view you know you, the way you view palestinians the way you view gentiles and, and this and that and when you see on the ground what's actually happening or when you see stories about what's actually happening you find out that being ignorant of psychological psychologically malformed individuals like pathological individuals creates a huge gap which can which will then lead to absolute catastrophe mm -hmm. and that's i mean i don't think you can say that anything going on in the middle east right now is besides you know the conquering of isis is but it's nothing but a absolute catastrophe mm -hmm. it's a it's israel when you read the stories that come out of there you feel just it's it's absolutely horrifying i mean um you know the shahak writes about how the you know the, the leftist liberal protesters in, who wanted to treat palestinians as equals or who wanted to uh, incorporate them into the you know the country they they would bring up uh, biblical biblical verses to try and convince these you know orthodox classical rabbinical type of ideologues about their position but they didn't realize that they they had they had a completely different language for understanding the bible it, everything it just bounced right off of them you can't say that you know don't steal or don't kill or thou shalt you do you can't quote biblical verses and give it to them because they have a completely different way of interpreting them and they're completely justified 
in doing whatever they're doing to the Palestinians or, you know, whatever the IDF is doing, you know, in Syria or anything, right. because it's for the purpose of this ideology. Mm -hmm. Well, we're coming up on the end of the show today. Um, I want to bring up one cl closing thought, and then we'll actually we'll we'll come back again next week, and we'll we'll continue this discussion because uh, there's a lot we didn't get to. But the thing I want to to close on is this connection that I'm trying to kind of work out in my head between this kind of this schizoidal um, like psychological poverty and this kind of doctrinaire reasoning. Um, this is something that. Um, that Dabrowski pointed out and and commented on in you know numerous of his works, and that is the the kind of the the intellectual faculty and like intellectual reasoning when divorced from emotion. Um, and he said that was one of the worst things uh, that could happen. It's a that is a catastrophe waiting to happen. Um, that very process, and that's what we see in the both of these ideologies, and it's got this kind of flavor to it, like. Um, when you see this kind of reasoning that goes on, because it is reasoning, it does make sense. Like if you accept the premises, like oh, like Jews are Jews, non-Jews are animals. Therefore, if you you know you have to save a, a Jew, but it doesn't matter. Uh, well, you can't kill a a, a non-Jew, but you can let him die if you know. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's actually a good thing if you just let him die, because that means there's one less animal in the world, and animals are bad. Um, like the, so, there's this this reasoning, this logic that goes on, and it, and it is like this game theory type thing, but it's completely divorced from from any kind of like just normal, healthy common sense and just normal like psychological insight. And this is what Lobachevsky talks about. And so when we the, the connection, I think, is is in this schizoid um, personality disorder, because like I said last week, this the schizoid is like a how did I put it? It's like pathologically unemotional and introverted. And I guess for like the, the people that write these books, they'd probably be high in openness too because they've, they've got this interest in ideas, right? They're interested in, in the logic of things and, and coming up with these grand systems and, uh, of, of rules and, and like if this, not this, and then this, and all of these, this intricate design of, of rules for everything, right? Mm -hmm. But it is divorced from any kind of understanding of normal un emotional understanding. That's completely lacking in, in a schizoid, just as it is in a psychopath. So, like the schizoid version is like is it's completely divorced from from just a, a healthy, normal understanding of what people are actually like. But then you get this grand system that then like infects everyone that comes in contact with it, and then and it like because if you grow up in one of these communities, those are the rules, right? This this is what you must believe, and then it's a struggle to to break free of that system in which you were born and you know and raised, and, and like because those are the those are the values that have that you've you know been nursed on your entire life and like specifically in reference to Salafi jihadism but this applies to um, like Talmudic Judaism as well is that <clears throat> if you look at it like they both but both of the both these ideologies for them for the adherence of them there's nothing intrinsically wrong with murdering uh, like an innocent person like there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. There may be all kinds of like circumstantial or contextual reasons why you should or shouldn't, but there's nothing actually wrong with it. And uh, like in the case of Salafi jihadism, um, like there are certain restrictions, for instance, on um, like the killing of like women and children in warfare. Um, like it shouldn't be done, and there are, there are verses in the Quran that say that. But for the theorists and the people like coming up with all the rules. 
um, there are certain, these restrictions can be removed in certain circumstances. And in those cases, these people revert back to the status of kufr, of, uh, of being non-believers. So then it becomes justified, it becomes okay. And, um, and then a as for just things in general and what is forbidden and what is not, like their belief is that as long as it's not expressly forbidden, then anything goes when seeking retribution, for instance. So if, you know, if someone has, has uh, like harmed you or harmed Islam or harmed any Muslim in any way, for these Salafi jihadists, as long as there's no, as it's not expressly forbidden, then it's no holds barred. Like, it's, and it's the same thing with Judaism. It's, it's this very doctrinaire system where it's like, okay, well, here are the rules. Now, here's how I get around the rules. Because I'm not doing what's expressly forbidden, I'm doing what is just maybe implied to be forbidden, but it's not expressly forbidden, so I can get away with it. That's okay. In fact, that's a good thing. You should do that. And but even then, um, even those um, even those expressly forbidden things can be overturned because, according to this like this way of reasoning, um, certain acts, certain impermissible acts, become permissible um, in Islamic law in cases of existential threat. So if you can demonstrate that there is an existential threat towards Islam in some way, towards you in some way, then all those impermissible acts then therefore become permissible. So it's just this this like intricate like baroque web of reasoning where it's like here here are rules, here are the rules that apply to to life and they're just rules like they're ex externally created rules, but there's nothing intrinsically good or bad about those rules and like nothing that you actually feel in your conscience. It's just those are the those are the standards. And here are the ways around all those standards. And that's it. It's like there's that and that is completely anti-human. Like there's there's nothing human about that. Um it's anti-free will, anti yeah. yeah. Well, and that and that too. Like the one of the things that the Salafis um say in one of their core beliefs is that like uh, individualism and the idea of of uh, personal like sovereignty and free will is actually a bad thing, um, because it leads to the the possibility that uh, the possibility and the reality of people not following God's God's will, not f following the rules, and then that um, um, that in it how do, how do they put it. Um, yeah, and, um, oh, I might be able God, to find the quote. Or we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll read the quote next week. I'll, I'll leave you. I'll leave our listeners hanging for it. But it's basically, um, it, it it takes away uh, without the the like this what you might call the state without the the like big brother watching out and, and making sure everyone everyone does what they're told. Then um, then they're not going to do what they're told, and and that's bad because it's a sin. And so, therefore, we need um, we need a, a strong, you know, system of authority to keep people in check and to make sure they do what they're told. And and that that means that you know, free will and and actually thinking for yourself and and maybe saying, oh, well, you know, I'm not sh quite sure about that. Um, that's you know, forbidden. God doesn't like any of those things. No. Nope. And and this idea of an existential threat uh, is pervasive in in Israel as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something we can get into next week uh, yep. too so on that note so on that note thanks for tuning in everyone i hope you learned something today hope you were just as horrified as we were to be learning the things that we're learning but it's uh it's all it's all part of it's all part of life it's necessary necessary work got to do it so thanks for tuning in everyone and we'll see you next week bye everybody take care <laughs>